Thanks for downloading this episode of Pythagoras's Trousers. For more information, go to www.pythagorastrousers.co.uk. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. What many people would describe as the range of colours of light. But that only accounts for visible light. What about the invisible light? The light that our eyes can't see but is nonetheless all around us. Ultraviolet rays from the sun, x-rays in a hospital or microwaves that cook your food. They're all types of light waves in the electromagnetic spectrum but not visible to the human eye. I'm Rhys Phillips, and in this special edition of Pythagoras' Trousers, I'm going to be finding out what the invisible can make visible. Astronomers are interested in making observations in the far infrared range of the electromagnetic spectrum. This allows them to see the stuff in our galaxy that's really, really cold. I went to the School of Physics and Astronomy at Cardiff University, where I met up with Chris North, who explained more. Chris, we're standing in front of a, of a scale model of the Herschel Space Telescope. Yeah, so the Herschel Space Observatory was something that was launched in 2009 by the European Space Agency. And the reason I wanted to, to show you this is that when you think of astronomers, you often think of people looking through the eyepiece of a telescope and gazing at the heavens and doing all sorts of stargazing. But in fact, professional astronomers really rarely go and look down the, or very, very rarely go and look down the eyepiece of a telescope. Mm. And There's a limit to what you can see yeah, using that yeah. method, I guess. Um, for a start, it tends to be looking at things on uh, on computers. But we also tend to look at not visible light. Uh, we, as well as looking at the light we see from stars and, and, and galaxies, we look at not just the light from stars, we look at the light from gas and dust between the stars as well. Now what Herschel's doing here, this quarter scale model, uh, the, the mirror here is about a metre wide, the real thing is three and a half metres wide, mm-hmm. uh, collects an awful lot of light, it's the main mirror, then goes up to the, where the little secondary mirror is and then down through a hole, much like a standard telescope you might see that was at the top of Hawaii, you know, the summit of Hawaii or something yeah, yeah. in professional astronomy. But what that's doing is not looking at the visible light, it's looking at what we call far infrared and submillimeter light. The same kind of stuff, but much longer wavelengths. So we think of wavelengths being blue light, green light, red light, different colours of light if you like. If you go way beyond the red, you go into the infrared, and if you go to the very, you keep going, you get into what we call the far infrared and the submillimeter parts of the spectrum. Now these wavelengths are, are not really emitted by, by stars, they're emitted by stuff that's much, much colder. You're looking at wavelengths that are 100 to 1,000 times longer than the wavelengths of light we see with our eyes. So you're looking at material out there that's typically hundreds of ti- thousands of times cooler than stars. Why are we interested in this, in this really cold stuff then? Well, the, the cold stuff out there is actually what most of the, the visible matter in the universe is, is gas and dust between the stars. That gas and dust is what stars are born from. That gas and dust collects together to form stars and then later planets and then, of course, life and so on. But it's also what we, uh, what stars create when they die. So there's a life cycle of stars. It's not just stars being born and growing old and turning into red giants and all these things you might learn about in school. It's also this whole extended life cycle with the, the way the dust gets distributed through the, through the galaxy and then forms later generations of stars and how that's changed over cosmic history. Our universe has changed as it's grown older so, say, five billion years ago, star formation or stars were forming in our, in our universe maybe a hundred or more times faster than they are today just because of the way everything was clustered together. Experiments and missions like Herschel are letting us study that gas and that dust and see how stars were forming and how everything was behaving. 
So it's really important that we that we can look at this non-visible light that's that's been emitted. Why can't that be done by using a you know a, a conventional looking telescope? Why do you have to send something into space in order to to be able to detect this sort of light? Well, th- there's two reasons for that. So if we look at if we look at Herschel here again, it's got a mirror that reflects light. Uh, mm-hmm. All kinds of light will will go up and end up, go through that hole and go into that instrument cabin below, for example. But that stuff in the uh, below it. But, but what you see with a telescope doesn't just depend on the mirror. It depends on, on the camera you've got at the end or the, in, the scientific instruments you've got down at the base as well. So to, you, if you stuck a normal digital camera at the bottom of there, you wouldn't necessarily see anything. But Herschel has these uh, special detectors, special cameras and instruments that look at the light and the, and the particular wavelengths of light that it's interested in to study that material that it's, that it's gazing at. And you need those those particular kinds of detectors, those particular kinds of cameras to see the material and to investigate the processes in star formation. Uh, now, uh, next to this uh, this model of Herschel is a model of uh, of uh, Planck, another telescope over there. So, uh, what was Planck doing that Herschel doesn't do? Well, Planck was uh, it's a funny looking satellite for a start. It sort of looks sideways. Uh, it span on its axis as, as it was uh, observing the skies, and it actually mapped out over the course of its uh, few years observing in space. It mapped out the entire sky. So not just looking at specific objects, it mapped out the entire sky. It was looking at slightly longer wavelengths than, than Herschel's uh, been looking at, uh, and that allows it to see even colder stuff. It sees stuff that's, that's down at just a few degrees above absolute zero. So we're talking at things that are minus 270 degrees C, say. And the dominant thing that's at that kind of temperature is actually, somewhat counterintuitively, the universe itself. Our universe has been expanding for nearly 14 billion years, and the general radiation in the universe, the light in the universe, has been stretched out to longer wavelengths and effectively cooler temperatures over that, those 14 billion years. And it looks now that the universe has this constant afterglow of about three degrees above absolute zero. And so when you look at this really cold stuff, you see that the universe in general isn't completely uniform. There are little hot bits and, and cold bits, dense bits and less dense bits. And we're looking at the baby universe, we're looking at the universe as it was 14 billion years ago, just by looking at these longer wavelengths, because the light has been stretched out by the expansion of the universe. So with Herschel, we see the formation of stars within our galaxy and in nearby and very distant galaxies. With Planck, we're seeing some of that stuff as well, as well as the, the early universe itself. And that's all down to the detectors that's within them. That's the, way, the kind of light that we're looking at. Planck uses what we call little microwave horns or millimetre wave horns to collect the light and funnel that down onto the detectors that are actually making the measurements. And, and a kind of a large-scale version, in some senses, of what's inside some of the instruments in Herschel as well. Now, Planck was looking at the stars of the universe, and Herschel was looking at the way stars are forming in our galaxy and, and nearby galaxies. But they can actually work together to look at the intervening part. So when we look at a galaxy, which typically contains... 100 billion stars, say, and we see galaxies clustered together in groups of hundreds, maybe even thousands of galaxies distributed through space. So we have galaxies that are formed of, say, 100 billion stars and and all the gas and dust that goes with them. Then we have clusters of galaxies. These contain maybe hundreds or possibly even thousands of galaxies, and these are the largest structures we see in the universe. But there's one one question that's... uh, There's lots of questions in astronomy, but one of the big ones at the moment is how do those clusters form? When did they form? How did they form? What are the early early clusters look like? And Herschel and Planck working together are are starting to, to answer that question. So 
Planck surveyed the entire sky, made an, a, a map of the entire sky, these long, long wavelengths. And it's found objects, a couple of hundred objects, that look like they might be examples of these proto-clusters. Now, Planck doesn't have very good resolution. His mirror's not big enough. Herschel has better resolution with a, with a bigger mirror, and that can study these objects in more detail and say that, yes, these objects Planck seems to have found by observing the whole sky and being able to look at that whole archive. Herschel can look at it in more detail and say these do appear to be clusters of, of young... or, or these do appear to be young examples of galaxy clusters, what we call proto-clusters. So we can actually use these two remarkable uh, satellites together to learn more about the evolution of stars uh, over, the last, uh, over cosmic history. Observatories such as Herschel and Planck rely on special detectors in order to see the far infrared light being radiated by the cold areas of the galaxy. But how do they work? I met up with Peter Hargreaves to find out. Well, the detectors that were on board Herschel and Planck were both um, a, a much earlier generation of detector technology. Um, basically, they're, they're thermal detectors. They detect the temperature increase that's produced by radiation hitting the detector itself. Basically, they're very, very elaborate thermometers. The trouble is that while, whilst they were very sensitive, for instance, the detectors on board um, Planck were sensitive enough to detect the body heat of a rabbit on the moon, uh, should rabbits be able to live <laughs> on the moon. There were thermal devices such that... Uh, the light hitting these detectors was was um, absorbed, produced a very small temperature increase, and very very sensitive thermometers registered that temperature increase, and that was the signal. Uh, however, technology has moved on in the last 10, 15 years. We now have a new generation of detectors um, invented in Cardiff um, called uh, superconducting kinetic inductance detectors. Now these detectors um, rely on a new technique. Basically, they're a film that once cooled below a certain critical temperature, the film becomes superconducting. Superconductivity is the absence of all electrical resistance. These the superconducting detectors remain superconducting until a photon of light hits them. So you're able to monitor how conductive the material is, and if you see a change, then it means that something has hit us, you've detected it's something. Not, it's not the conductivity. The way these detectors work is a very clever technique. Um, they're, they're made as little resonators, basically little tuning forks. So each of these detectors sits next to a line, just, just literally a wire that zigzags through your detector. Next to this zigzaggy wire, you have a resonator, and this resonator is basically tuned to ring, to sing at a, a certain specific frequency. Now, as the radiation hits each of these resonators, that changes the frequency at which it sings. So basically, if you send a lot of frequencies down this line, you can see all of these detectors singing away at a slightly different frequency. As light hits each of those resonators, the tune at which they sing changes very slightly and that's our signal that's the signal that we can detect so this technology was was developed here at cardiff university we're standing now in in a room which is it's an anechoic chamber for those who who, who don't know what that looks like it's basically a a room with uh, foam padding around the walls in sort of pyramid shapes poking out and and you can probably hear that uh, the acoustics in here are quite dull quite dampened what's this room used for well this particular room is used for testing um systems not so much detectors on their own but uh, detectors put into a, um, an instrument system, uh, normally with four optics. And the reason for all of this padding is not to absorb sound, it's to absorb these long wavelengths of radiation, the long wavelengths of light. If we wanted to um, see how a detector responds to light as a function of angle, we want to make sure there's no reflections off bits of equipment within the room. Yeah, I guess up in space there's nothing much for it to reflect off. Apart from the instrument itself. So when you're making a space instrument, you need to make sure that uh, your instrument is designed very carefully so you don't get any glints off bits within the instrument. You need to make sure that any stray light, as we call it, is properly controlled. And that's exactly what this room is 
designed to do. It's to minimise any stray reflections that you don't want. Okay, and what are we looking at here? What's in front of us? Well, actually, what we're looking at here is um, this is actually a prototype um, testbed for a future weather satellite. Uh, now, the detectors that are used on this on this instrument are slightly different to the ones that are used on Herschel, and they're not the superconducting detectors that I was just talking about. But they use the same type of uh, technologies and techniques Uh, for instance you can see a range of uh, filters in front of several of these uh, detector horns and these filters also developed in Cardiff Um, we have a world leading capability um, to make these filters and they're used to control and define the light that each of the detectors sees so for instance on Herschel Herschel had three cameras working at slightly different very long wavelength colors uh, and those different channels those different sort of the equivalent of red green and blue if you like uh, were defined by filters that we produced in Cardiff And that's what this facility here is used for testing. It's looking at the um, optical performance of a mock-up of a future satellite. So this is a a weather satellite. This is not just about looking at the origins of the universe, then? The reason we built Herschel was because trying to do astronomy from the ground in these long long wavelengths is very difficult because our own atmosphere absorbs these wavelengths very strongly. Uh, Now, we realised quite soon that we could actually take advantage of this. Herschel was a space observatory because we wanted to look at the far distant universe at these long wavelengths we had to be above the atmosphere but because our own atmosphere interacts so strongly with these wavelengths we can actually look at the emission at these long wavelengths from our own atmosphere and use them for weather applications and also for um, instruments to investigate climate change one of my main projects personally at the moment is um, looking at a new instrument using these exact same technologies that have been developed for astronomy but a satellite based instrument that's going to be looking back down on the earth now the thing is that our own atmosphere the, the, the lower down you get in the atmosphere, the more opaque it becomes. So we can use that radiation emitted from the lower atmosphere. As it comes up through the atmosphere, it will be absorbed and scattered by cirrus clouds, by ice clouds higher up. Now, this instrument that I'm talking about, um, using exactly the same technology that was developed for astronomy, can look at the absorption and scattering of the radiation from the lower atmosphere, and it can give us, for the first time, definitive information as to how ice clouds interact with this radiation now this is really important because it's a globally accepted by at least the scientific community that climate change is real and it's happening Mm -hmm. there are a variety of climate change models out there all of which predict a rise in global global average temperatures by the end of the century the numbers they're predicting are between two and about five or six degrees centigrade and that's the global average now the difference between two degrees and five degrees is huge in terms of the ramifications of life on earth or ramifications for life on earth ice clouds play two roles in the global global climate system one is that they reflect sunlight that's coming into the earth they reflect a certain um, proportion of that back into space Uh, so in that way they have a slight cooling effect but also radiation that's welling up from the uh, from the earth's surface can't escape. thermal radiation um can't escape yeah so ice clouds have both a warming effect and a cooling effect but it's that balance that we just don't know and it's the biggest uncertainty comes from the role of ice clouds it comes from a thing called the ice water path uh, and to bring it back to to space i guess then i mean can this sort of thing be used to look at the weather and climate on other planets too absolutely yeah um so the instrument that I'm t- i've just been talking about in terms of looking at climate change and also the same instrument would have applications in monitoring the weather that's also perfectly applicable to be yet there's no reason that we should be having this instrument flying around earth it could be flying around one of the other planets in our solar system as a low earth sorry as a low planet orbiter looking at the atmosphere of uranus or venus for instance um no reason at all why we can't do that now that's obviously for planets in in our own solar system 
but we're, t- we're talking about detectors and detector technology and instrument technology in Cardiff generally. Uh, one of the big research areas we have is going further afield. It's looking at extra, what we call extrasolar planets. We know that there's a whole host of planets now um, around other stars. Um, several, you know, we're into the sort of tens of thousands now being catalogued by satellites such as Kepler and so on. So we know these these planets exist. We can detect them by either the wobble they produce on the parent star or we can look at the way in which as a planet moves in front of the star we get a slight dip in the light to output. So we know there are planets there. We know how roughly how big they are, how far they are out from their parent star. But at the moment we don't know anything else about them. We can't characterize them. So we're involved in several projects at the moment uh, to develop proposals for new instruments, uh, new satellites to actually characterise these exoplanets for the first time. The choice of detector technologies traditionally available in this range has up until now been very limited, costly and difficult to implement. For the shorter wavelengths, there's currently no high-performance technology with space heritage. For longer wavelengths, detector arrays are complex and difficult to manufacture and operate. The Kinetic Inductance Detector, or KID, is a new superconducting detector technology suitable for detecting electromagnetic radiation at the far infrared to millimetre wavelengths. The EU-funded project Kinetic Inductance Detectors, a new imaging technology for observation in and from space, or space KIDs, is focused on the development needed for implementing these KIDs on new generations of satellite instruments. Simon Doyle is one of the team involved in designing the next generation of detectors for these observations. So for astronomy, what has been the driving force is more detectors which are more sensitive. This allows us to see fainter objects in the universe. So the previous uh, generation of detectors were, although very robust, quite cumbersome to build, um, which meant we couldn't make large arrays of them. So the arrays of detectors of previous generations have been of order a few hundred detectors. With this new technology, what we can do is make a few thousand detectors on a single array, so it's much, much easier to make large arrays of these detectors, so large, mm-hmm. large imaging uh, arrays, but they're also far more sensitive. So they're roughly about uh, between 100 and 1,000 times more sensitive than the previous generation of detectors. Okay, and we've got one of these sort of prototype detectors here. I mean, it's small. It fits in, it fits in, in my palm. Yeah. Is this a realistic size? Uh, yeah, so the, this prototype is 80 pixels, um, so for a thousand pixels, we'd be looking at something of order about ten times the size of this. Um, but this is li- the the physical limits of the arrays that we can make because um, it's determined by the uh, the wavelength of the light we're actually looking at. So you can't make them any smaller, regardless of the technology. Uh, what what is the, the the design process then? How do you go about advancing this technology and coming up with the new designs? Um, Well, there's a huge amount of physics theory, as you could uh, imagine. Uh, So these devices are based around superconducting technology. So what we would do is looking at the theory of superconductors is work out what the sensitivity of our detector would be and create what's called a model of this detector. So what generates the noise in the detector and what generates what's called its responsivity, so how it responds to light. We then take that model and tweak it Uh, physical aspects of that model until we could maximize the uh, signal to noise in our detector we'd then go away and make that design test it and check that it conforms to the model that we've just made and then refine the process in a kind of iterative process okay and uh you can we can hear uh, this strange noise going on in the background here what 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 are we listening to what is that noise uh that noise is a pulse tube cooler so these uh, detectors need to be cooled down to very very low temperatures so the system you can hear behind me is uh, running now at about 100 millikelvin, so that's 0.1 degree above absolute zero. 
So that system is actually one of the coldest places in the universe as we speak. And that, I mean, for, for people who, who are wondering what that is in, in real money, that's, uh, that's uh, minus 273 Celsius, yeah? Yes, or 0.1 degree above that. <laughs> yes. Okay, so very, very cold. And why do they need to be this cold? Um, basically, heat in detectors causes noise. So what we're looking at is such faint signals that uh, any, any sort of thermal signal from the detector comes up as light or manifests itself as light in the system and noise. So what we need to do is cool the detectors right down to these very, very low temperatures to reduce that noise and uh, give the optimum sensitivity for the device. Now, I guess people can imagine that you can come up with something elaborate in a laboratory to keep them cool, but how can you then do that in space? Well, uh, Cardiff is part of a European collaboration to actually develop this technology for future space-based applications. So what we're doing is not only developing the detectors, but actually developing the detectors with the view to them going on a satellite. So we're actually looking and investigating the technologies, the sort of power consumptions, the uh, cooling power that's available in a space-based environment, and actually looking at all of this to take this technology forward to put it on the next generation of satellites. So this project is called Space Kids. Uh, It's been funded by the EU and it's coming to its final year. It's run for two years previously. And where do you see the future of this technology going? And what are detectors of these sorts going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years' time? Well, hopefully in, in, uh, in that sort of time scale, they'll be far more commonplace. So we're kind of used to seeing CCD detectors everywhere. So we have them in our mobile phones, we have them in digital cameras. Um, obviously, people are not going to have a call for such a sensitive detector in their mobile phones, but we could imagine these things being commonplace in uh, future uh, Earth-observing satellites and uh, astronomy satellites. So what, what we're really looking at is two decades' time the requirements are going to be very, very stringent on what sort of detector technology flies in space. So we're hoping to fill that niche with a technology which is easy to make and uh, ready for the next generation of experiments. And do you think those experiments are going to be similar or will the experiments themselves start to be looking at sort of vastly different things? Um, They'll be looking deeper into space. They'll be looking at fainter objects and looking in more detail. So it's really a question of sensitivity. That's what the next generation is going to be doing. So the telescopes themselves are going to be cooled, which means that they need colder uh, or more sensitive detectors to actually be able to sense these very, very distant and faint objects in the universe. Like a lot of technology originally devised for a particular purpose, these detectors aren't only going to be useful to astronomers. Ken Wood is sales director for QMC Instruments, a spin-out company from Cardiff University which has identified other areas that these detectors could be used in. QMC Instruments is a profit-making company and it is in partnership with the academics of Cardiff University. It was set up in the mid-1970s to partner academics then at London University to use their intellectual property, their inventions and their ideas outside of their own academic field. So for example, whereas my academic colleagues were interested in using the technology for use in astronomy, we came up with an idea that the same kind of technology could be used to monitor and control the machines that were then being developed to look into the possibility of nuclear fusion as a source of energy. Okay, so uh, we're here in the laboratory. Tell us about the sort of things that are developed here. Most of our detectors uh, operate at cryogenic temperatures, very, very low temperatures, way below room temperature, and in fact close to the theoretical lowest temperature 
which is approximately minus 273 Celsius. And in order to achieve those temperatures, the detectors are usually cooled with liquid nitrogen, liquid helium. And for many years, our company has been selling and designing uh, detector systems cooled with these liquid cryogens. More recently, the academics here at Cardiff University has helped us to develop technology whereby the detectors can be cooled essentially with an electrical cooler which you just need to plug into the wall and switch on. And in business terms this has been a huge boon. It means that such detectors with their very high sensitivity are now available to people who do not have access to these liquid cryogens. For example in second world countries like Brazil and India. And so we have expanded our sales quite considerably recently in that respect. Okay, so I, I guess that part of this commercialization process is, is finding new uses for, for this technology as well. So we're, so far we've been focusing very much on, on astronomy. We talked a little bit about weather and climate systems as well, but, but stuff that's outside of our world, basically. It's something that's floating up there looking down on us. Where can this be used on the Earth? Well, the common factor here is the characteristics of the radiation that we're looking at. We are in the millimetre wave part of the electromagnetic spectrum. That is light that the eye certainly cannot see. It's a much longer wavelength. And it has very interesting properties. For example, it passes through certain gases and dusts. And that allows our astronomers to use these wavelengths to see right to the edge of the observable universe. But other materials here on Earth have very similar properties that make this area of the electromagnetic spectrum very useful. Uh, so, for example, terahertz radiation has been used quite recently to look at skin cancer. It's possible to take a picture of skin cancer using millimeter waves and it gives us slightly different information about the form of the tumors that are seen on skin. Now this is a very recent development and it's certainly not the case that you will find millimeter wave instruments in hospitals but the scientists here at Cardiff University are helping to develop this technique such that perhaps in the future you will. Now, other materials also exhibit very interesting properties at this part of the spectrum. And, for example, artwork has been examined using this kind of radiation. And it's amusing to know that recently uh, a, a piece of art, I forget who the artist was, it might have been a Michelangelo, but a picture of a Michelangelo was taken using our kinds of detectors and we were able to see the pictures that were painted on the layers below the, so the earlier drafts. The earlier drafts of the picture. And I believe that there is a virgin and child image. And underneath the virgin and child image, there is an elephant. <laughs> and so that helps the people who are interested in the history of art and the restoration of masterpieces to plan their work. So it's very much the, the not just different aspects of science, astronomy, and medicine uh, collaborating here, but but this technology being moved into to the world of the arts as well. 
Yes, as I said to you before, we now have the ability to cool our detectors to these ridiculously low temperatures just by plugging a box into the wall and switching on a supply of electricity like you would a kettle or a domestic appliance. So our techniques can now go out into the real world. And one of the other interesting things is that even your clothing has interesting properties in uh, these wavelength ranges. And so there are certainly potential markets for us in security scanning and process control. All of these are potential markets. We are still examining them. But the future is certainly very bright for terahertz radiation. And all of that technology came from the astronomers here at Cardiff University. I'm Rhys Phillips, and this special edition of Pythagoras' Trousers was a Radio Workshop Cymru production for the IET. The technology is progressing and new applications of it are being found, but as it becomes commercialised, is there a risk of competitive technologies emerging into the market? The final words come from Ken Wood. That's quite difficult uh, to answer because there are specific solutions to specific problems and here in Cardiff we are only looking to solve a subset of the potential uh, problems that terahertz radiation can assist with. Uh, But yes, there are uh, competitive techniques, but we're certainly one of the pioneers and we certainly hope that in future our Cardiff-based business will develop very nicely ahead of some other competitive techniques. And one thing that we have in our advantage here is that our astronomer colleagues are always looking for sensitivity and their wonderful technologies are almost able to detect a single particle of light, a single photon, at these frequencies. Beyond that, nobody could detect. And therefore, if we are able to detect single photons, we would have the best technology in the world.